0: Good morning, I'd love for you now to take your Bibles and we're going to pause in our series in the Psalms, this being uh, Palm Sunday. I'd love for you now to take your uh, Bible and turn to the last book of the Scriptures, and that's the book of Revelation. And we're making our way to Revelation chapter 7, verse 19. Now what I want to do is to be able to connect the dots because as you connect the dots, you and I might remember that the Apostle John had penned these thoughts when he was observing uh, the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. He had written in John chapter 12, verse 13, so they took branches of palm trees, went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, means, oh, save, save us, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, the Apostle John is on the Isle of Patmos, he's got to be thinking about that. And now he begins to compose his thoughts with regard to the untimes. Look for palm branches. Because in Revelation chapter 7, beginning with verse 7, 9, you find these words. And after this, I, I looked and behold a great multitude that No one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes, mark this, with palm branches in their hands. And they're crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders, the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen which means literally, it is true. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Notice how he bookended the amens. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and From where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes, made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence and they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. And so Father, we're going to be exploring your word together and we're gonna to try to connect the dots as we typically do. Pondering the events that the gospel of John records with this vision that the Apostle John eventually would record, and seeing how the Gospel of John, the Book of Revelation, among other books, all seemed to fit together in such a natural way. So, Father, take this word now and apply it to our hearts. Warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills, it's again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus and, and Him only. Praying these things again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, would you join me as we make our way to the Isle of Patmos, where the Apostle John found himself exiled by the Emperor of Rome? He wrote the Gospels and the Epistle, the Gospel John, the Epistles, and the Book of Revelation between 85 and 95 A.D. And now, as his finale, he begins to compose the Book of Revelation on the Isle of Patmos, exiled roughly 60 miles off of Ephesus, going somewhat westward from Turkey. Walked that isle to some degree, and it's, it's somewhat barren. But, when you walk, you reach a point where you make your way into a particular setting that historically has been viewed as the place the cave where the book of Revelation was revealed to the apostle John. Now you're gonna wanna gonna wanna um bend a bit. I'm over six feet tall, and I had to do a little bit of bending to get through that door to get into the cave. It's crowded because. People line up, and if you're claustrophobic, it's not exactly gonna be the most pleasant experience for the next few moments of your life. But tight as it is, you begin to ponder the significance of that setting where God had revealed his, his plan of redemption for all of history, and you're beginning to connect the dots. And you're thinking about how John had actually walked that island how uh, John had been in the setting that now you are standing or maybe bent over or maybe even kneeling at this point. And you're thinking about that extraordinary moment when pilgrims were making their way into Jerusalem, taking po- branches of palm trees, and they went out to meet him. And as John would pen it, crying out, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So what I'd like to do is to explore this one who is king of kings and lord of lords. We're going to look very carefully at Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 through 17. And we're going to draw out three significant aspects to this gathering that I think has direct bearing upon the way in which we live our lives before the one who is king of kings and lord of lords. And the first aspect comes out of verse 9 through verse 12. As you and I, as we ponder the nature of Christ's reign, I want to begin by noting here with me the worship worship that's being offered. Now, notice what happens here. After this, he says, I looked. And right away, because you're a student of the scriptures, you're saying, Gary, it says after this, after what? Well, what we find is that John has been given an extraordinary vision, a vision of the four horsemen and how all this would unfold. And as the vision of the four horsemen would begin to unfold, the prior chapter, chapter 6, ended with this statement that the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains. Perhaps John's in that cave at this point and pondering out what's, what's going on. Calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. And then in the form of a question, for the great day of their wrath has come. Here's the question. It begs an answer. And who can stand? Check out verse 9 now. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, and peoples, and languages, standing. He's answering the question Who can stand? These ones, saved by God's grace, this multitude that nobody can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, are standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and now you can almost picture this point. As his mind goes back to that scene where there was this great gathering of people entering into Jerusalem, acclaiming the swan they viewed as Messiah, the King of Israel, as he writes, with palm branches in their hands. You're connecting John chapter 12, verse 13, which he penned with now what you are spotting here in Revelation chapter 7. And now this international community is gathered around the very throne that everybody anticipated where Jesus Christ would reign. But you see, he had to go through death and resurrection to get to that point. And now the palm branches began to take on new significance. Um, Make our way, don't we, to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And as we make our way to Jerusalem on a Palm Sunday, and there we have it. And now the people are gathered together, it's been happening, and there are palm branches and hands as this international community of people, sort of a prelude to what is still to come in that final day, are now gathered to ponder the significance of the one who came to die for our sins. On the third day, to be raised from the grave, ascend to heaven, and now seated on the throne. The right hand, you see. The right hand of the Father. Well, if you're going to be gathered around the throne, you're going to want to be crying out, Hosanna. And so in verse 10, they are crying out with a loud voice, Salvation. Salvation. And remember the word Hosanna, oh, save us. Here's now the response to the Hosannas of John chapter 12. Now after death, resurrection, ascension, seated at right hand, reality, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, And you see, to the Lamb to the lamb. This is, this is interesting. My friend Kent Hughes, family friend, several years ago, he tells the story of when uh, he was making his way in San Diego after having spent some time speaking. He's an outstanding expositor, most recently a professor of theology Practical Theology at Westminster. He says, I had heard, particular museum, that I had heard that they had an El Greco, a painting of St. Peter holding the keys to the kingdom. So, paid my money, walked into the museum, located the painting, looked at it, in admiration. and Then I turned around, and Kent wrote, on the opposite wall was a small, ancient walnut-colored painting, and the date The date was 1525, which would have been just shortly after Luther would have posted his 95 Theses on the door of Wittenberg. I looked closely at the painting. I saw that it it was a lamb, almost photographically rendered. And around the lamb's head, barely perceptible, a halo, And I looked more intently and I saw that the lamb's legs were tied and shrouded by the dark background. It was lying on a cross. The title of the painting was Agnes Dea, Latin for Lamb of God. Now, with that in mind, with that image in mind, what strikes me is that when John was introduced The Apostle John was first introduced to to Jesus Christ. As he was being introduced, what he would find is that John would say to him, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What is fascinating to me is that this is a different word for lamb than appeared in the Gospel Council, let me explain. Look what appears on the screen now. In John chapter 1, verse 29, which the Apostle John penned, we're told the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, off to your left is the Greek word amnos, anglicized amnos, It's the sacrificial lamb. So when Ryan Karp was talking a little bit earlier about the scene from Exodus and how the people were were freed from captivity in Egypt, When the blood was applied to the doorpost, it had to do with the sacrificial lamb. And so John the Baptist was pointing to Jesus as he was talking to the Apostle John, and he's saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the sacrificial lamb, Amnas is what's interesting now. When the Apostle John gets to the book of Revelation, he does not use Amnas. He chooses a different word for lamb, anion. In Jewish apocalyptic literature, anion was the conquering lamb, the victorious lamb, the lamb that the Jewish people were anticipating still to come. What John is now doing brilliantly through two different words, For the same idea, lamb, he's connecting first and second comings of Jesus Christ, the sacrificial lamb, first coming, the victorious lamb who returns, second coming, pulls it all together for you and for me, and he's saying, and that's the one who is seated on the throne. The one who died, and three days later was raised from the grave, he intentionally uses a different word to link together, to pull together, to connect the dots of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is brilliant. And that's how God inspired John at that point. Depend these thoughts, you take a deep breath, and you're thinking about the significance of what this means and then, after pondering the idea that he is now using the Anion in verse twelve, verse ten, rather than Amnas, he then adds in verses eleven and twelve. And all the angels were standing. Standing. After the question was posed at the end of the prior chapter, and who can stand? He's answering the question visually. And so angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. Well, not for long, were they? You were so overwhelmed by the Lord until they fell on their faces before the throne worshiped God saying amen which in the original language carries with the idea of it is true and notice how he bookends verse 12 with the amen and they're saying blessing and glory and honor and thanksgiving and honor power might be to our God forever and ever, amen. From beginning to end, it is true. And now you've got this multitude that no one can number, gathered together, strangers to one another perhaps, but united in Christ, worshiping the one known as the Lamb, the victorious Lamb. George Truett was a pastor in Dallas many years ago where uh, Benjamin, our youngest son, uh, lives with his wife, Jessica. And Truett tells the story of an art gallery where an older man was seen gazing at a picture of Christ on the cross. And almost unknowingly, as his lips parted, he uttered the words, I love him. Well, strangers standing nearby heard the man's words, stepped over and put his arm around and said, brother, I love him too. And then another man stepped and put his arm around the previous one and said, and I love him. And then another, and all of a sudden, there was this extraordinary gathering of arms wrapped around one another united in oneness, strangers they may be, united in oneness in relationship to their faith in the onion, the risen one, Jesus Christ. This is the one who's on the throne. This is the one of whom the Apostle John, now in the Isle of Patmos, is going to have to link together his writings of the gospel, his writings in the epistles, his writing of Revelation, and pull together the John chapter 12, verse 13 scene of the people with palm branches, and now this scene where this international gathering of people in one voice are worshiping the one who's King of kings and Lord of lords. So as we worship, as we ponder, as we think, as we, as we reflect upon the nature of Christ's reign, out of verses 9 through 12, that's your first aspect to consider, the worship being offered. But there's a second aspect, and it comes out of verses 13 and 14. And it has to do, furthermore, with the question here, the question that's being and the question that's being addressed. And so, beginning in verse 13, one of the elders addressed me, saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where they have come? I said to him, as you might, to a professor who knows all the answers, sir, you know, I remember saying that one time to Dr. Kaiser. You know Dr. Kaiser. And then he proceeded to answer the question. Got me off the hook in a hurry. I want you to know at that particular point. Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white, you see. White in in the blood. Now, notice with me at this point, the question is being posed in two parts, and then the answer is reversed. Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where do they come? And so now the answer is delivered, Sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Now, what interests me, and perhaps interests you at this point, is that when you open the book of Revelation and you begin to ponder how it begins, we are told in chapter 1, verse 9, there on the Isle of Patmos, John would write, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus who is on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, how do you understand this? John says um, that here I am, I'm a partner in the tribulation, and yet we're talking about these individuals in the great tribulation. Now, my second Monday study group, leaders in the church who join and participate in this know what I'm about to say. This is an installment. The installment of persecution, the installment of tribulation that the Apostle John is experiencing being exiled on the Isle of Patmos is an installment that will lead to another installment that will lead to another installment such as in 1948 when the Jews were being persecuted and so forth, but then out of the Holocaust, they received statehood, astounding. But there is still a final installment. And so what he does is he collects the installments of tribulation, leads us to the final installment and here now, you and I are informed of these words. Well, John himself has talked about, I'm in a state of tribulation, uh, he hears the response. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of Naamnas, Anion, the victorious, the reigning lamb, that means then that they were willing to be courageous for their faith in the days of tribulation. Dr. Turner, who was a pastor in Berlin before World War II, he visited Heinrich Niemöller, the elderly father of Martin Niemöller, who defied Hitler, spent a lot of months in a concentration camp. Dr. Turner recalled the courage so as he stood at the door, he was preparing to leave. He tells us, and I quote him now, Grandmother Niemöller held my left hand in her two hands. And the grandfather of Mott seven and seven children patted my right hand and then put his hand on my shoulder. Uh, when you go back to America, Don't let anyone pity the father and mother of Martin Niemöller. Only pity any follower of Christ who does not know the joy that is set before those who endure the cross, despising the shame, which is what gets one through tribulation. Yes, it's a terrible thing to have a son in a concentration camp, a son who knows Christ as Lord and Savior. But Paula here and I know something else. There would be something more terrible for us if God had needed a faithful martyr and Martin had been unwilling. And what strikes me about this scene in Revelation chapter 7 is that this gathering of people, they're more than spectators of Christ's suffering. They're more than witnesses to Christ's suffering. They're actual participants in Christ's suffering because they've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. They have been witnesses for Christ in the most turbulent of times, times of tribulation. They share in his sufferings, so they're gonna share in his glory. The apostles warned the new converts in Galatia, and it was understandable that the countless multitude, the redeemed whom John saw before God's throne we're going to likewise understand the idea of coming out of the great tribulation and as having washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. But did people grasp that when they first held palm branches? By now subsequent to death and resurrection, what we find is those who have now grasped Death and resurrection, this great multitude are gripping the palm branches, and they are waving them around the throne. So when you begin to connect the dots of the Gospel of John in twelve thirteen, where palm branches were in their hands with now, in this gathering that we are analyzing. You notice the worship being offered in 9 through 12. Just spot the question being addressed in 13 14. Well now you end with a perspective that's being given in verse 15 down to verse 17 at this point where now further insight is offered regarding this crowd and spot the uss with me. Therefore they are before the throne of God Here's one of them. Serve him day and night in his temple. Here comes another. And he who sits on the throne, still more, will shelter them with his presence, which in your times of need he shelters you with his presence. Notice the satisfaction in 16. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. Sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. Why? Here's your answer. For the lamb, the reigning lamb, you see, the victorious lamb, is in the midst of the throne, will be their shepherd. And there's the irony a lamb, as a shepherd. But you see, when the Baptist pointed Jesus out for the apostle John, and would say, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was pointing to the one who would refer to himself later on as the good shepherd. And you're tying it all together And so, out of all this, then, He'll guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And He's a specialist in that. And so, for those who love Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but have gone through some extraordinarily difficult times in life, God's got one big handkerchief. And he knows how to wipe the tears of this multitude. You see? So you pull all that together and you realize the significance of what you're exploring here on this Palm Sunday that leads to a, a Monday Thursday, which leads to a Good Friday, which leads to an Easter Sunday. So now, join me on that road It's the road that Jesus would have traveled on that Palm Sunday where he made his way towards Jerusalem, setting in motion everything that we have just covered. Let's stand together. And so, Father, we're thanking you now for being our God. You're the Sovereign One who sent Jesus Christ into this world to die for our sins. And we're utterly amazed that the Amnas became the Anion, that the sacrificial lamb became the conquering lamb, that a first coming sets in motion a second coming. And now we connect the dots. and We see how all this fits together for your honor, for your glory. And Father, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.